It's Friday, October 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The White House has scrambled to help ease the situation at ports off the coast of California and avert a holiday shopping crisis. President Biden announced this week that the Port of Los Angeles will be open 24-7 and that major companies will also expand their working hours to help offload products. While this may help in the short term, supply chain issues are expected to last into next year. Stephen Overly, global trade and economics reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Next, some good airline news for a change. For all those that love their carry-on bags, overhead bin space is getting bigger and there are also more spots. The changes are rolling out on newer planes, but space is increasing by 50% and both passengers and airlines are finding that it's reducing the friction of loading on the plane. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more space in those overhead bins. Finally, we recently heard that the ivory-billed woodpecker was deemed extinct, and now the American bumblebee could be at risk. Their population has decreased by 89% across the country and has already disappeared from eight states. Climate change, pesticides, loss of habitat, and competition from honeybees are driving their numbers down. Asha Gilbert, trending reporter at USA Today, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The Port of Los Angeles announced today that it's going to be begin operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This follows the Port of Long Beach's commitment to 24-7 that it announced just weeks ago. Joining us now is Stephen Overly, global trade and economics reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Well, the supply chain issues facing the country has been a, a pretty hot topic the past couple of weeks. We've seen countless overtures by officials saying, get your holiday shopping in now. It's pretty early to start thinking, you know, even in that mode. But they're saying just in case there might be shortages, there could be higher prices. All sorts of stuff is going on. And uh, obviously, one of the key things we keep pointing to is all the big container ships off the coast of California and the backlog that's going on there. In an effort to help with all of this, President Biden announced Wednesday that the Port of Los Angeles is going to start operating 24 hours a day, and other major companies are going to also step up and work, expand their working hours to try to just unload as much as they can and start delivering across the country. So, Stephen, help us start out there. What, what are we seeing with the action from the Biden administration? So what the Biden administration announced this week is, as you mentioned, the Port of L.A. is going to move toward 24-7 operations. And then they also got commitments from a handful of major retailers and shipping companies like UPS and FedEx and Walmart to also expand their operations, essentially spend more hours every day moving cargo from the ports into the country, into warehouses and into stores. The goal here is really to try to alleviate some of this congestion at the ports that is causing dozens of ships to sit offshore waiting to unload products, things like electronics, furniture, children's toys, all sorts of gifts that you and I might want to buy going into the holiday season. And so they're really hoping to essentially get things moving and get things moving faster to try to avoid this kind of end of year crunch where you have a lot of people out looking to buy gifts and stores have empty shelves and they're not able to get the items that they want or need. Yeah, it's crazy to say, but it's just over 10 weeks until Christmas. And, you know, the Biden administration, this has been on their radar for some time. They set up a couple task forces and things like that have, that have kind of been started in June and August even 
to address some of this stuff, but it could be politically damaging for the administration if this doesn't get fixed economically, obviously, you know, if people aren't buying stuff and these things don't, aren't moving, the effects on the economy could be pretty bad too. That's right. You know, these supply chains problems really are multifaceted. Everything from computer chips that are necessary for our electronic devices to pharmaceuticals, you know, all of these different products have had shortages or have had issues getting shipped from Asia to the United States. And so the Biden administration has been dealing with different pieces of this problem. And they've, in recent days, been focusing their attention on the issue at the ports because it will be such a problem going into the holiday season. And it does present a political risk as well as an economic risk for the Biden administration. You know, the economy is still coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. And so they want to keep that momentum going. And they don't want to avoid sort of criticism, especially from Republicans, if people do have kind of a lackluster holiday season (laughs) because we have all of these container issues. Yeah, Joe Biden killed Christmas or something like that, you know. Um, But you can totally see that kind of criticism coming if something like that happens. So a lot of people have said, you know, these immediate these actions that were just taken are going to help alleviate the problem in the short term. But longer term, what are we seeing there? And, and you know, beyond that, too, um, you know, when we're talking about the infrastructure bill that they're working on right now to get passed, I guess there's improvements for ports and things like that. That could help. But unfortunately, it won't help right now. That's right. I mean, uh, the reality is there are very few things that can be done right now to really alleviate this problem, especially because. We're about 10 weeks till Christmas and the timeline to really get products into stores, you know, that, that, that problem would need to be solved quite quickly. As you said, in the long term, you know, these problems are not expected to go away, you know, and so there have been calls from the Biden administration and others to invest more heavily in the ports and freight rail and transportation systems to essentially make them more efficient and help accommodate this increase in products that people are buying. You know, but those those investments, as you said, are long term. You know, we still haven't seen Congress approve infrastructure funding yet. And even once that happens, these are multi-year projects. So those long term solutions are not something that's going to really help us this holiday season. Yeah. And a lot of those improvements are needed on the West Coast specifically. Right. It's the clearest path from Asia where we get a ton of our stuff from. So the improvements uh, need probably need to be started there as well. And and so what are other companies doing right now to get around this? You made mention how other large retailers that have the resources are chartering ships. They're, uh, you know, sending truck drivers uh, to unload stuff and just start the process going. I mean, they're trying to work, get some workarounds going as well. That's right. I think every major retailer is, is trying to figure out what they can do to kind of save their own Christmas. Because as we all know, you know, This holiday shopping season for many retailers, especially small retailers, it's what makes or breaks their entire year. And so, you know, they're quite desperate to make sure that product is in stores where people can buy it. So, you know, we've seen large retailers like Costco charter their own ships to try to bring products in more quickly. You know, we've seen shipping companies reroute away from West Coast ports because they are so log jammed. You know, we've seen folks try to lean more into air transportation, but shipping right now is very expensive. And so there really is not some low cost, easy fix for any of these retailers. You know, and the reality is the big retailers have more resources than some of the small ones. I was speaking with a small toy distributor in Florida that is sort of desperately trying to get Tonka trucks out of China 
in time for the holidays and just really isn't finding any any cost effective option to do that. So all sorts of companies are, are really struggling with this. Stephen Overly, global trade and economics reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So the larger bins allow you to turn bags on their side. And so you can actually get 50% more bags into the overhead bins. Even more important than that is there's room for everyone. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you. Well, we got a good story finally to talk about with regards to airlines. We all know how tight it is on an airplane. And, uh, you know, when you're piling into the plane, you've, one of the first things you do is throw your carry-on bag into the overhead bin. Those things can be a mess. But little by little, it seems like uh, airlines are starting to make these improvements. And we're starting to see some bigger bins for those carry-on bags. And uh, surprise, everybody loves it. So, um, Scott, yeah. tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, no, it's it's really, I mean, this is sort of a, one of those win-win situations where and it's rare in the airline business where something that's good for passengers is also good for the airline. So the larger bins allow you to turn bags on their side. And so you can actually get 50% more bags into the overhead bins. Even more important than that is there's room for everyone. And that's right. not the case in standard bins. Um, in fact, there may be as many as 20 passengers or so for whom there just is no overhead bin space. It's the sort of the, the result of airlines packing more seats into airplanes. Right. The planes didn't get any longer, so there weren't any more, there weren't any more bins added. Um, but there may be 12, 18 seats added to an airplane. And the baggage fees themselves. And when baggage fees came in, people started, you know, becoming pack rats and loading up on what they could get into the cabin for free. Hey, you know, um, so it, it's, it's been a big problem. And these big bins are a really effective solution. That was one of the shocking things that I thought when I started reading through your article. You know, you kind of always had that sense there's not enough space for how many passengers there are. But in some cases with some of these planes, they had room for 118 bags in a standard configuration that jumped up to 178 bags uh, that can fit now. I mean, that's a huge jump. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned yeah. more seats and we knew that was happening, but that is a large number of bags they can fit now. And, you know, it's just the worst thing when you see it start filling up, then they start saying, well, no more space up there. You know, we're going to have to check your bag now. And, you know, a lot of people were trying to avoid that altogether. Right. I mean, if you think about it, the whole boarding system is kind of revolves around the bin space problem. People cherish their early boarding status. Um, right. It may be the only perk you get from elite status, but it's important to people. And people will pay extra for early boarding. And the really the only reason, practical reason to be on the airplane early is to find over empty overhead bin space um, where, where you want it. So if you're in a late boarding group, there's a whole lot of stress um, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's tough on gate agents. It's tough on flight attendants. It's a problem for airlines because it's time to go. And now there are six or 10 people standing in the aisle with bags that won't fit. And they got to swim upstream, get them to the front of the airplane. The flight attendants have to carry them and tag them and get them down the chute. And all of a sudden, the flight is delayed. 
simply because there wasn't enough overhead bin space. Right. Yeah. You so, called it. You, you know, called it the, you called it the walk, the walk of shame, having to take that bag back up to the front. What planes and airlines are we seeing this with? Because there's still some airlines that are saying no to you know going this route with bigger uh, overhead bin space. Southwest is not really playing that game yet. So where are we seeing these bigger bins? So th- this is a this is an issue on narrow body airplanes, uh, planes with a single aisle. Wide body airplanes with two aisles. There's plenty of bin space there. And so uh, Boeing is doing it on its uh, on the 737. It's an option on on new planes. It can be um, retrofitted, but that's expensive and challenging, and not many airlines are retrofitting, but certainly on on new deliveries. So Alaska has uh, has the uh, big bins on 56% of its Boeing fleet. American's really the leader in this. Boeing was first with this. Airbus came out with uh, what they call the XL bin. Same kind of idea. And American has that on a lot of its A321 airplanes. It has the Boeing space bin on most of its 737s. So American now has two-thirds of its narrow-body fleet with big bins, and they're going to get to 75% by April or so. United just ordered 200 airplanes from Airbus and Boeing. They'll all have big bins. You know, they will come in over the next several years. And you mentioned Southwest, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing. Boeing says the big bins are getting ordered by airlines on about half of their deliveries. And that is kind of disappointing that you would think, you know, this is a no-brainer, but airlines are resistant. Well, Southwest is resistant because they offer free check bags, and they would rather have you check the bag than bring it on board. They don't want people <laughs> to become pack rats on their airplanes, so they're limiting bin space. Now, in their in their defense, um, they don't really have a bin space problem because so many people do check for free. And so it's not as big an issue at, at Southwest as it is at some of the other airlines. Yeah, it's just that extra step having to check the bag, then going to the carousel after that. Uh, I know a lot of people, including myself, like to avoid, you know, so if you can pack light and just do the carry on, you know, that's kind of the, the optimal thing. But, you know, and you mentioned the article, too, you know, it's a simple step. But a lot of times, despite how simple it is, some of these improvements don't always happen very readily. So good news for now that uh, we're starting to see a change with all of that. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you. When was the last time I saw a bumblebee? And I live in Georgia and I live in Savannah now where there are lots of different little insects, but I I really don't see bumblebees often at all. Joining us now is Asha Gilbert, trending reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Asha. No problem. Thank you guys for inviting me on the podcast. Well, it was just a few weeks ago that we heard the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announce that the ivory-billed woodpecker is now extinct, uh, along with some other 11 other species of of plants and animals and things like that. The one we're going to be talking about this time, because people are asking for this insect to be placed on the endangered uh, species list, is the American bumblebee. And we've seen them actually disappear from eight states. I, I just had not even heard about the decline of this, really. So, Asha, tell us a little bit more about it. Alrighty, so the population of American bumblebees has actually been dwindling over the last two decades, according to a petition from the Bombus Pollinators Association of Law Students, or BPALS. 
They're a group of 14 students out of Albany Law School. And so the decrease is by 89% across the U.S., right? Which is crazy. Yeah, definitely. But in other states, like the eight states that I wrote about in the article, Maine, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, Idaho, North Dakota, Wyoming, and Oregon, each have zero or close to zero American bumblebees left. I'm just I'm curious. I live in California and just kind of anecdotally, I remember as a child seeing a lot of them or, you know, much more frequently. And now it's almost kind of a a special little sighting, I guess you could say, if you see a bumblebee out there. I'm just trying to rack my brain, you know, when the last time I actually saw one was. Yeah. After I wrote this story, I definitely had the same sentiment. I was wondering, like, when was the last time I saw a bumblebee? And I live in Georgia and I live in Savannah now where there are lots of different little insects, but I I really don't see bumblebees often at all, if at all. So what is the consensus? Why do they think we're seeing this declining population of the American bumblebee? Some of the things that the petition notes is habitat loss, climate change, insecticides and fungicides, the grazing from um, farm animals like cows, horses, and things like that, and just a decrease in their natural habitats. And, you know, they are vital pollinators in agriculture. So the loss of them could be a loss of a lot of crops. Right. I guess competition from honeybees is also listed as one of the weird things, you know, uh, kind of uh, making that decline happen. Uh, So what happens next? Obviously, the petition and, and, you know, we talked about in the podcast briefly before, too, with the woodpecker and just kind of the how all that stuff develops getting an animal on the endangered species list. It takes a lot of political will because it impacts a lot of stuff. It could impact business. There's so much that goes into it. So what are we seeing with this? What's the the path forward going with the bumblebee? So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did announce their 90-day findings from the four petitions that are looking to be added to the list of endangered and threatened wildlife list. The next step is for it to go through a review study with them. And then from there, they will look at the direct threats to the species. In the 90-day review, they did find that it is plausible that American bumblebees should be added to the Endangered Species Act, but it'll take another 12 months before a determination will be met. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's tough. Like I said, you know, when we talked about the woodpecker, this is the steps that it takes to go through. It takes a long time. And in the meantime, whatever is causing the decline of these populations continues to happen. So we're always playing this weird catch up game and, uh, you know, it's hard to get there. You know, I'm not necessarily a big fan of bees myself, right? Anybody that's been stung before probably hated it, but nobody wants any of these types of uh, insects and animals to to really become extinct. So it's an important issue. And, you know, if it does end up getting uh, granted protection, uh, I guess people can face up to $13,000 in fines, uh, you know, for ruining, killing the bees or ruining the habitat. So a lot of stuff to consider. That, that's why I'm saying it, it takes a lot of political will to push these things onto the in, endangered species list. So we'll keep an eye out for all of that. Asha Gilbert, trending reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.